I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hi, this is Bill, and welcome to episode 27 of Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. This episode is entitled End of Day Shuffling to the Apocalypse. So normally, I have a fortnightly issuance of this podcast. All of my loyal audience members will note that I am two weeks late, yet another fortnight, a fortnight times two. And I just wanted to provide a brief overview of what happened. I tried to set out when I started this podcast with episode one, where I would have discipline enough to do these fortnightly or every two weeks for those of you who don't know the British terminology. And I tried to do it on the dot. For the most part, I was able to do so. But a major life change occurred in the last few months, which led to a major road trip in October, in which the house that we had sold a year ago led to us renting a house in the state of Arizona, same state, about a mile and a half from the house that we had sold because we love the area. Our intent was to eventually get back to Florida as returning Floridians. For a variety of reasons, we found Arizona may not be the place that we want to spend the days uh, for the rest of our life, and even it may not be the appropriate elephant whaling ground for us once we do assume temperature as either a couple or individually. What we discovered is that besides the Californication, the changing attitudes in the state economically, what happened during the recent gubernatorial elections where the governorship was won at the very same time that the person who won was the Secretary of State, the apex predator in charge of all the elections, it was obvious to me that there was a lot of chicanery, mischief, and mayhem in the voting integrity process in Arizona. Plus, I think that in the next 12 to 18 months, if not a little further down the road, Arizona is going to have a come-to-Jesus meeting when it comes to water and water usage because of California using the Inland West as its local reservoir in order to sustain the Southern California desert and turn it into a green area at the expense of these states. So we decided to hit the road, and we did. So we packed up our 26-foot U-Haul. I sent off a very large pallet of books that weighed nearly a ton and a half, in addition to books that I brought on the 26-foot U-Haul itself. And we made the road trip. We made it in four days. Wife followed I had two cats in the cab. She had our other two cats with her. We successfully navigated in four days from Arizona to Florida. So here we are in a very nice little town in a house that we had closed on in July, just below Tampa on the Gulf Coast. Very happy as returning Floridians. I was born in Miami. Uh, my wife was... Uh, Born and spent a lot of time here in the Gulf Coast region, Sarasota, Northport, those areas. 
So we're pretty happy with that move and what's transpired during that time. I'm unhappy that I lost my cadence and lost my rhythm with my fortnightly issuance of the podcast. So I'd ask my listeners for forbearance and forgiveness for being two weeks late between episodes. So instead of two weeks between episodes, we have four weeks between episodes. But this will come out Monday morning. And everybody will be able to see that I am not out of business. I have not stopped the podcast, but I am continuing. Well, we arrived here in Florida last Tuesday, and my wife, being the miracle worker that she is, were pretty much almost unpacked by the following Thursday. This would be a Saturday, Sunday that I'm speaking to you as we speak. And while my books are yet to be completely unpacked, All my bookshelves are up that I constructed and reinforced in my very large office space. My podcast studio did, for the most part, survive, evidenced by my voice in this podcast that we have. I had to make a few nips and tucks, and as usual, whenever you move computer equipment, you find that some stuff either doesn't continue to work or you found an improved way to do it. So the recording studio arrived intact. And here we are. I am also happy to report in miscellaneous news that I finished Adrian Goldsworthy's biography of Caesar during my road trip, along with two books to include Fehrenbach's book on the Korean War. I commend both of those, well, all three of them, to the attention of listeners if they're looking for a good book to read or listen to. Also, I had the opportunity to uh, see America again while we made this road trip. Arizona to Florida. Very interesting. Really happy with uh, having settled on the place that we're at. I really enjoy the, I really enjoy home ownership again. So that's really nice to actually have a place where I can have all of my stuff. And I just so happen to be about 70 miles due south of the other Fort Meade, not the one up in Virginia, but Pat Keller's killer gamut resolutions shooting range that he has down here. That is just an awesome range complex for those of you who are shooters. Sad to say, this may be the last year where my sons and I will be shooting together in a private course with Pat Keller, but maybe we can get that restarted some way. So I have come up for air, and I'm finally paying attention again to what's going on in the world. As I mentioned before in this podcast, I don't watch the news. I don't watch CNN. I don't watch Fox. I don't watch any of that stuff. There's a reason that they call it programming. Usually I read opinion pages, I read editorials, Uh, I've been visiting my favorite foreign policy website of all time since 1999, which happens to be antiwar.com, where I go for most of the news that I find. I've really been enjoying Colonel Douglas McGregor's sober and um, really individuated and, and quite different assessment from the mainstream media, talking heads, and the uh, political apparatchiks all around the U.S. and in the West, because he seems to me to have the only perspective on what's really happening in the Ukraine and what's really happening with Russia. I also wanted to have a shout-out to Lester Grau, who's with the Foreign Military Studies Office. He's getting long in the tooth. If I, if I may repeat a quick story, I arrived in Afghanistan in 2013, loved his books to include The Bear Went Over the Mountain. I get back to Les 
at that time and say, hey, Les, can you send me an Urdu and Pashtun version translation of that book? He says, Bill, I'll do you one better. I'll send you both of them and I'll, um, I'll send them over as soon as I can. Uh, two to three weeks later, half a Connex arrives thanks to Les Grau. Because at the time, I was advising the Afghan general staff in Kabul and found it very useful, even though the Afghan people, even in those places, aren't quite the reading culture that those of us on the West are acquainted with. The reason I say that is because a very good colleague of mine, former student and a correspondent, uh, we've stayed in touch, now he's a... Um, a higher-ranking fellow in the U.S. Army. He and I correspond on a consistent basis. He had the opportunity to spend several hours with Les Grau because, like McGregor, Grau is probably one of the more sober and realistic observers of what's going on in the regional hegemonic Near East for Russia and what the real deal is. So I enjoyed corresponding with him and and finding out how Les is doing. So uh, shout out to you, Les, if you happen to be listening to this or one of your colleagues does, and he can pass it on to you. I owe you a lot for the intellectual favors that you've done me in the past to bring me to the place that I'm at now where I think I do make more sober and realistic appraisals, especially when it comes to irregular warfare, than a lot of my colleagues past and present. Last, I did a review and discussion of Paul Avalon's book, which was called Tattoo Zoo, which I called the seminal work in this century of this century's wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, the Middle East, uh, Horn of Africa, all of those that really captures the essence, essence of the soldierly profession, the pratfalls and pitfalls of political leadership in uniform and out of uniform, and the absolutely horrific and counterintuitive conclusions and outcomes that occur as a result of a foreign policy in the West that rarely seems to examine the second and third order effects of what it seeks to do when it sends the military in harm's way, especially since 1945. So shout out to you, Paul. We've uh, corresponded, and I hope to uh, make an acquaintance with him and share an adult beverage with, with him up in another state at a time when I'm going to visit some of my relatives. So I'm looking forward to that. Again, it's one of those happy, serendipitous moments where through no cause of my own, I happen to find another acquaintance colleague and potential friend in Paul after reviewing his book. And he didn't send it to me. He did the hard work. And I found it. And I said, more people need to read this book. Paul Avalon's Tattoo. I don't always try to make this podcast contemporaneously relevant to what's happening today, this week, this month, this past year, whatever the case may be. What I have discovered is that a number of listeners and um, folks who I know have reached out to me and said, what is your assessment of what recently happened in October with Hamas out of Gaza and their staged invasion, as it were, into Israel proper and what happened? So, uh, We'll talk about that a little bit today, and there it is. The first thing I want to give your attention to is that this is an historical podcast in several ways. Number one, it's the way I read what's happening today, because if you don't know where you, you've been, you can't possibly know where you are. So you always have to examine the cause and effect and the riff and the rhythm of past events that have driven forward 
these waves that wash onto the beach of the present and cause us to perceive and react to the world the way it is today. So I have a, several recommendations. Number one, Daryl Cooper at Martyr Made, one of my favorite history podcasts. One of his first series was, uh, I think it was five or six episodes called Fear and Loathing in the New Jerusalem about the founding of modern Israel. And it ends between 1946 and 1948. I am fond of saying that Newton's third law is, uh, is quite strident in what it does in human events. And I think that's what we've seen recently with Hamas and other Islamic guerrilla organizations in Israel. If you look at what the Jewish settlers did in the nascent British Palestine from 1946 to 1948 on the cusp of getting the state of Israel recognized by planet Earth, you find that their behavior there was just absolutely abysmal. And a slight proviso, I don't have a dog in this hunt. As with Ukraine or Russia, I don't think it's any of our business. As with Israel and its Arab neighbors, I, I think that the, the events that we see there are what happens when you have two recalcitrant and I would say irreconcilable neighbors hashing out their territorial disputes in both a nonviolent and a violent faction and using world opinion to sway what's going to happen in either Israel or on the Arab street. So if you listen to the Martyr Made podcast, which I recommend in its full, you see that neither Arabs nor Jews in this case for the entirety of the 20th century are without sin. And both of them have done a number of things in which they did not do themselves any favor as far as stability in the region. I would also suppose that 67 and 73, those respective wars that Israel fought against its Arab neighbors were the high points of Israeli military supremacy, if not superiority, in the region, in that everything's gone downhill since. When you look at 1982 and what happened in Lebanon the first time, disaster for in so many ways. And it, it set the roots in the current Gaza conflict in so many ways when you examine that particular kerfuffle. Advanced to 2006, and then you have the very ill-timed, ill-equipped, and ill-advised invasion into Lebanon against Hezbollah by the Israelis and the IDF, and the resulting 2007 and 2008 Winograd reports, W-I-N-O-G-R-A-D. Highly recommend that you read those for a very serious and sober criticism, not only of the IDF's military functions, but also of the perfidy and, and sheer incompetence of the Israeli government at the time. So again, I urge you to read some of that. I will be reading excerpts in a few minutes about that very thing. We advance forward now to October 2023 with the absolutely horrific Hamas incursions into Israel proper. And let's also remember that in 2006, isn't that a coincidence? It just so happened that Fatah, which had ruled Palestine for the longest time, was overturned by Hamas. And Hamas not only gets its funding through external partners, both Shia and Sunni, 
to include Iran, to include Saudi Arabia, to include Qatar. But it also gets them through taxing the population, administering things in the population, administering infrastructure, much as Hezbollah did in Lebanon. Not to belabor a moral equivalence here, because the condemnation of Hamas's actions in October 2023 are fully justified. It was barbaric. It was monstrous the way they conducted themselves. But then again, if one were to take a 5, 10, 15 year snapshot of IDF and Israeli police actions in Gaza proper on its border and such, you start to ask yourself, well, where is it that this is so different from what they were doing, excepting the paragliding operations for insertion and infiltration? What I find most curious about all of this is the bloodthirsty yells for revenge by Israel against Gaza. And of course, that's what started this in the first place. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the Hatfields and McCoys, but I would say that it's almost just as irreconcilable as that family dispute because nothing is going to make this better short of rather um, totalitarian means of quelling this through either the elimination of Israel or the elimination of Gaza or the elimination of the Palestinians. But then again, the Palestinians have been a burr in the saddle of the Arab street since 1945 through 1950. No one wants them. No one wants to provide them safe haven, sanctuary, anything like that. As a result of that, they discover that they're not going to be able to use peaceful means to rectify what's going on. Again, Cooper's podcast gives you... I think a lot of the necessary background material from a fairly dispassionate perspective on what you need to know for the actual formation of Israel up until 1948. And then from there, there's uh, several other opportunities that you have to get better about what you know about the Middle East to include a book that I've mentioned several times in the podcast series concerning Armies of Sand, Kenneth Pollock's book concerning the way while Arab armies cannot conduct themselves in a conventional fashion of warfare, and of course the high tide of that kind of existential martial incompetence was 1973 with Egypt, for instance, you discover that they are quite capable of conducting unconventional gray zone and hybrid warfare just short of conventional because culturally they just seem absolutely incapable even the very redoubtable Jordanians have their own institutional problems when it comes to conventional military operations. And another necessary preamble before we get into the meat of our discussion concerning specifically what happened in October 2023 with Gaza and the horrific and monstrous martial behavior we saw on display there. There is a band of conflict that has been brewing and, and um, the kindling has been set, the fire, the coals have been burning, as it were, all the way from, when you look at a map, look at Africa from the western reaches of Mali, and then trace your finger across that map all the way over in a slight arc, a parabola, to the Pakistan-Indian border. And you find that up until October 2023, the only place that was at a relative very low simmer was Egypt. And of course, we know in October 2023, that is no longer the case. You also know 
It is a conceit of this podcast that, and of course this is from the University of the Intuitively Obvious, larger conflicts uncork, decant, and make limber and maybe even burn brighter the ashes of simmering conflicts that are decades, if not centuries old, and that they're able to brew up to the top and maybe even create larger conflagrations like we saw with the cessation of World War II in April and August, respectively, in the European and Pacific theaters of conflict. That did not stop the smaller conflicts. And of course, it was the witches brew synchronicity with the end of the colonial empires of all the European powers and the dismantling of those in the following decades that would lead to both interstate and interstate conflicts around the globe, primarily in Africa, some in South America, a lot in the Middle East, but all of those places were just wicked cocktails of these conflicts that came up to the surface and finally bubbled and boiled into the conflagrations that we've seen recently. Hamas, Hezbollah, and other Shia and Sunni Islamist organizations that are arrayed contiguously against Israel proper have been at it for decades. They're very sophisticated. Some of them, like Hezbollah, as was demonstrated in 2006, have a very curious, if potent, hybrid, conventional, unconventional framework in their forces that causes them to be quite effective at doing what they do. Now, I'd mentioned the Winograd report from 2006, and I do think that that is a good, um, probably either predictor or forecaster of what would happen in October 2023, because one of the astonishing things about October 2023, to my mind, when it came to this Hamas attack, is I think that in Israel, there are probably 80, 90, 95-year-old Israelis who have been there quite a while, of course, be their age, because they're either original residents or they're expats from other countries who have joined the diaspora to come to Israel, that they probably got every square meter of the border with Gaza proper and Lebanon, if not Syria, uh, monitored where they're sitting in a lawn chair and they know the number to call to Shinbet, Mossad, whatever the helpline is that the government has set up for identifying immediate border incursions. None of this appears to have happened. This was a tremendous intelligence failure, not only on the part of Israel, but on the part of the West, because with both air-breathing and non-air-breathing technical means, not to mention the UAS, the, uh, the unmanned aerial systems, the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance systems that are aloft, and whether it's, it's humant, massant, or whatever the case may be, this may be one of the most monitored borders outside of Korea on planet Earth. So you would think that they would have had a clue of the indicators and warnings that would tell us in that three to four hours when this incursion first initially occurred and the invasion took place by Hamas, that somebody would have identified it early on. Additionally, another one of the problems is that there is a apocryphal sense in a lot of people's minds that Israel is very heavily armed. We've 
all seen the buxom Israeli beauties on the beach with their M16s or at the coffee shop and people traveling around on public transportation or in cars or walkabouts with firearms, whether pistol or rifle. That was the case in Israel up until 1997. Then a curious thing took place. In 1997, the same hoplophobia, the fear of weapons that has gripped the West, fear of weapons in private hands, that is, that has gripped the West for so many decades, gripped Israel. And what that means is that when we fast forward from 1997 in a number of very confiscatory and and just um, outrageously prohibitive actions on the part of the Israeli government against people who wanted to carry private arms to atomistically protect themselves from either common criminals or the less common criminals that we saw in October 2023 coming over the border from Gaza. That has not been the case. As a matter of fact, from what I've heard, and I'm, I'm happy for others who may either live in Israel or have more knowledge than myself, current private firearms ownership in the state of Israel is at 2%. Apparently, you are authorized one firearm, and you are authorized 50 rounds per annum, which to me seems very insignificant as far as training and maintaining your proficiency on said firearms. And remember, I'm, sp- I'm strictly speaking here about the private ownership of firearms. I'm not talking about issued firearms, but I do know that, for instance, in the kibbutzes, in these small, self-sustaining communities, especially those on the border with Gaza proper, They have armories, they have weapons, but apparently they keep them locked up. Now, I'm not aware how the militias within these kibbutzes work as far as the issuance of firearms, whether one is allowed to constantly have one on hand instead of having to fumble with the keys and get everything unlocked and get weapons issued and get ammo and magazines mixed properly and loaded and locked into firearms so that you can bring them into play. But of course, as we know, and we even experienced this in the West, the very best way to stop a carjacking, to stop a violent event and anything like that, is for a private citizen to have a firearm at hand with which they can handle whatever the event is that transpired. So I'm not only surprised at the incursion and no indicators of warnings that it would happen, I'm not only surprised at the lack of weapons ownership atomistically allowing them to protect themselves in a much more robust fashion against this kind of apparently, and I put this in air quotes, spontaneous incursion or invasion by Hamas or mischief makers from Gaza or wherever they may be coming from. I'm also surprised that the intelligence apparatus, and I was alluding to it earlier with those older people in lawn chairs and their binoculars who would be sitting there watching every meter of the border with Gaza not being clued in or or cued to what was going on. This was also an, an, an entirely avoidable intelligence failure. But remember, intelligence failures in the West, and one can certainly characterize Israel as a Western entity. Nothing's unusual about this. The CIA, since its inception in the late 1940s, has gotten so many things wrong. The intelligence community in the United States, for instance, has gotten so many things wrong. Remember that the CIA and other intelligence actors in the intelligence community, not only in America but in the West, were almost completely taken aback and surprised by what happened in 1989 through 1991 with the fall of the USSR. 
and predicting that that would happen. I mean, uh, up until that time, I remember in my training as a young economist, I was exposed to the noxious volumes by Paul Samuelson, where as late as 1986, he was saying that the communist model of economic rationing, price theory, and organization of society was so superior to capitalism that it would soon overtake the capitalist West because it was so good in efficacy and efficiency at what it did that the capitalist West didn't have a chance against it. And then a mere two years later, we all know what happened. So again, Israel, its entire intelligence apparatus in Mossad, which would be their CIA equivalent, or Shin Bet, which would be their DIA equivalent, and maybe a number of other intelligence organizations, both Cloak and Dagger and, and Vanilla and, and Black, that I, I probably don't know what the, um, what the alphabet soup is. I'm, I'm certain that they have a wide variety of intelligence organizations to rival the 15 members of the intelligence community that is here in the United States. But all of them apparently were asleep at the wheel did not have the right predictive or forecasting factors to extrapolate that this kind of thing was going to happen. The degree of cultural ignorance, the degree of religious ignorance, the degree of arrogance and hubris on the part of the Israeli government, and I will always put in parentheses next to that the West, because the West seems to have, despite what you see on college campuses in the United States today, a dedicated and and very firm resolve and support for the Israeli state and helping the Israeli state with weapon systems, intelligence sharing, those kind of things. But you've got to remember, you know how cynical I am if you've listened to my other podcasts about bureaucracies, about institutional inertia, about the sclerotic an arthritic nature of very large organizations and government especially, whether they are intelligence, war fighting, war manufacturing, war production, operations, whatever the case may be, become not agile, but become very incapable of extrapolating, even in this era of the all-seeing of having all the petabytes of data we have available to us. It's one thing to vacuum up all that data. It's quite another to take all that data, which is the information under which is a smaller circle of intelligence, under which is a tiny circle of actionable intelligence, and then to discern from that actionable intelligence short-term, intermediate-term, and long-term means to prevent or at least ameliorate or sort of take the edge off of larger conflagrations that come about. But of course, and again, I've repeated this in other podcasts, what you discover is that everybody who starts a war thinks it's going to be a short war. And we know historically that tends to not be the case. Islamist insurgencies tend to have a staying power, a longevity, and almost an impossible kill characteristic to them that is, I would say, legendary, if not very historically accurate. What we discover over time is that the more one fights them through all the dimensions of that fight, as we saw in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, the Horn of Africa, and all the other neo-imperialist shit pits that the U.S. and the West 
has bothered itself with since the end of World War II, quelling Islamist insurgencies by non-Islamist nations is almost an impossible task. Islamist insurgencies bested by Islamist counterinsurgents, especially in interstate conflict, there are some interesting possibilities, if not probabilities out there, that historically that may very well be the case, and it's something that I'm going to delve into in future episodes. But what you discover is that there is an almost limitless population of young military-age males who are willing, because of the nature of the Islamist religion and the nature of the countries that they grew up, grew up in, and the nature of the hard scrabble existence a lot of them experience, that they have a limitless supply of young men who will do these very things that they did. William Fortune, a novelist, wrote a book called One Second After, where he talked about EMP in the um, probably about 10 or 12 years ago. Love the books and love the series of books. Well, he also wrote a novella called Day of Wrath in which he extrapolated, and it was interesting to read the introduction or the forward to it in which he says that he didn't want to write this book. But what he talks about is that much like the million-dollar-plus investment that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda made in the attack on America in 9-1-1 on both the Pentagon and the towers in New York, is that for that investment, and he even told us this in a fatwa earlier, he would force the United States, or at least incentivize the United States and the West, to spend themselves into oblivion. Well, as a matter of fact, that's what happened. What William Fortune did, interestingly enough, in, in Day of Wrath, novella, short short novel, I, I urge all of my listeners to uh, grab a hold of this. It's a very disturbing novella, and its uh, its ending is is... I wouldn't say it's predictable, but it's very satisfying. But nonetheless, let's suppose, and this is, uh, I'm, I'm going to play off and paraphrase what his pricey is, his abstract for his idea is that a hundred Islamist insurgents are trained in the Middle East. They're chosen. They take years, probably a significant investment to come up with these hundred cadre who they're going to send to the United States. They speak well, they blend in, the passports are unblemished, and they come over here and they buy weapons and bring some organic weapons with them. But they buy a lot of weapons in America in this case off of, um, let's say, arms list or, or other modalities, maybe gun stores, who knows how they get a hold of them. They manage to get uh, AKMs, AKSs, some AK-74s, 47s, and, and a variety of Grenades and explosives, not only real explosives, but also decoy explosives and things like that. And here's their very simple job in major cities and smaller cities across America. This 100-man team splits into three, four, five, six-man cells, and all they do is they attack, in this case, elementary and middle schools, and then they have themselves stationed on clover leaves and highway arterials that lead to these schools. When zero day comes for them to conduct their simultaneous and contemporaneous operations across the entire country and across U.S. time zones, 
what they do is they manage to go in and they slaughter innocents. They do other things to innocents that they shouldn't do all ages. And this causes parents to go into a panic and it causes parents to do whatever they can to rush to the schools. And in rushing to the schools, they run into the second echelon front of Islamists who are on the highways causing the traffic jams. And in the traffic jams, they use the traffic jams to use their small arms, grenades, explosives, and things like that to cause all kinds of chaos. So twofold, according to Fortune, they had um, two missions. Number one, of course, was to terrorize the American population and prove to them that no government whatsoever would be able to protect them. And second, like Osama bin Laden's prediction in his fatwa, that the government would react in a fashion that it would rob, diminish, or disintegrate various liberties. And I'm not going to to, uh, spoil the end of the novel for you to tell you what happens, but it would be predictable for most of you who have been paying attention to the way the world works for the last two decades to imagine what the response of the U.S. government would be to this to either stop future events like it or to at least prevent them. So again, William Fortune, Day of Wrath. I think it's Dusai Ray when you look it up on Amazon. Highly recommend it. Give it a try. And it sort of riffs and synchronizes with what happened in Gaza in an eerie fashion, what happened with the the Hamas incursion from Gaza into Israel proper, where you have these irregular forces that are going in on a shoestring. I mean, the budget for this thing could, could not compare to the kind of budgets that the West is used to in their martial enterprises, nor was a sufficient logistics um, footprint necessary for this to be pulled off because apparently the way it was designed with, if I have my numbers correct and I know the numbers are going to evolve 1,500 of the 2,500 to 3,000 militants and insurgents who roared over the border into Israel proper in October 2023 were probably of a mindset that this was a one-way ticket and they were to do as much deviltry and malicious mischief as they could on the other side of the border and then, of course, they would die as martyrs. One would think that the possibility for these kind of events would have entered the Israeli mind, not only because they would imagine that the Islamists would do this, but if the IDF were to look at its behavior in Gaza and Lebanon and other areas that it happens to have fought in, they would see an eerie resemblance between what those incursions did and some of the operations that they themselves conducted. But again... The roots of this conflict, the roots of the sterile response, the roots of the uh, the impotency of the Israeli military and uh, constabulary factions in, in, in besting what happened. And then, of course, the inevitable reaction of wholesale bombing and destruction of buildings and infrastructure in Gaza proper. Again, Newton's third law will peak again in the near future as a result of the behaviors that are going on here. In the Winograd report from 2006, this was an invasion by Israel of Lebanon. 
Some of the conclusions were, and I urge everybody to get a copy of it, read it for yourselves, but I want to I draw some of the conclusions. Uh, generally, the war was characterized by grave failures and defects to include the IDF arriving just before this almost ad hoc invasion of Lebanon to warehouses that not only had insufficient war stocks, but maybe expired war stocks. And when it came to foodstuffs and POL and stuff like that, stuff that simply couldn't be used because its efficacy and, and, um, and usefulness had long ago expired. Again, both the military and the political leadership failed to plan and execute the missions of the war in Lebanon in 2006. The commission did not include any personal recommendations, but stressed that does not mean that personal responsibility didn't exist. They concluded that the decision to launch a military ground operation two days before the approval of the ceasefire agreement at the UN was taken after reasonable and military accommodations. That is simply not true because you know that they didn't do it properly when that happened. However, the decision to launch a ground operation in the final stages of war was taken without preparation with no achievable targets. See what I was talking about with the... the um, the degradation of their logistics footprint, not to mention the almost blind leading the blind aspects of their intelligence preparation of the battle space when they entered Lebanon at the time. The IDF failed to use its sizable advantages to achieve this victory in fighting against Hezbollah. And in the center of gravity in Israel, which tends to be the tank and aircraft strikes, simply not the best way to do your business when you're fighting a near-conventional foe like Hezbollah when they're surrounded by civilians. The IDF general staff, this, this astonished me, did not convene at any point during the war, a fact that proved detrimental to the comprehension and execution of the war's objectives. Now, the commission stressed the commitment of ground forces, the Air Force and the Reserve Forces during the fighting, and how the manpower kerfuffle that occurred as a result of that was just disastrous. I really appreciate the fact that there was a open kimono discussion in their after-action report in the Winograd Commission report and other reports where the Israelis really soberly and realistically looked at themselves and said, what are our shortcomings? What do we do wrong? And what can we do next? Because one thing I didn't read to you about this was the political implications of this, where they went all the way up to the prime minister and said that there was so much incompetence at the political level, that it was just breathtaking and astonishing. Now, mind you, did the IDF and the general Israeli political establishment in 2006 take advantage of this by institutionalizing reforms that would have stopped the repeat performance of what happened? Now, mind you, the, 19, the 2006 invasion of Lebanon was an invasion by Israel proper, and what we have here is an invasion from Gaza, by Hamas militants, who, by the way, happen to be Sunni, even though they have Shia and Sunni benefactors in Gaza proper, from Qatar, from the other places that I mentioned earlier, because that Shia-Sunni partnership only happens when they are fighting others, not each other. Because when you look at the Shia crescent from Iran to Bahrain, to Syria, and to Yemen, you discover that they are arrayed against the Sunni world for the most part. There's a reason in Yemen why the Houthi rebels 
are being fought against by the Sunni because the Saudi Arabians are funding most of that war in that civil war conflict as an extra state participant in that particular vicious and barbaric conflict in Yemen. So what I'm predicting here is that if a Winograd Commission report were to come out now or in the next 6 to 12 months to assess precisely what happened that not only allowed this incursion to happen and have the success that it enjoyed as a result of Israeli complacency, incompetence, and inefficiency, but it would benefit the Israelis greatly if this time they took a look at themselves and they took a look at the IDF and their political and diplomatic infrastructure and tried to implement some of these reforms that were hinted at in 2006. So again, I would like to apologize to my listeners for being two weeks late in the issuance of this particular podcast because I've been trying to stick to my fortnightly cadence of uh, having new podcast episodes come out. I wanted to thank all my listeners who have been writing me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That's cgpodcast at pm.me. And offer me constructive criticism, critiques, recommendations for future episodes, and just a, a, a great conversation and, and a half dozen folks who I've been able to meet virtually, you know, through the internets and, uh, and strike up real good intellectual and, and other, other uh, friendships. And uh, I want to say thank you for that. So thanks for listening. This is Bill signing off. This is Bill out.